This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, new and updated terms have entered the vocabulary of Black liberation. We'll speak with an academic and activist about critical race theory, racial realism, and Afro-pessimism. And we'll take a look at the history and current struggles of quilombos, the autonomous Black and Indigenous settlements of Brazil. But first... A globally important webinar on U.S. militarization of Africa through its military command, AFRICOM, will be held on December 4th. One of the panelists is Marie-Claire Farai, a Congolese member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Farai currently lives in Great Britain, a country where, like the United States, most people are not even aware that the greatest genocide since World War II is still unfolding in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is really a, a tragedy what is going on in the DRC here. I mean, as I'm speaking to you, I'm not only raising my own voices as uh, Marie Claire. Uh, Congolese diaspora women living in the UK, but I'm actually raising the voices of millions of Congolese who don't have a voice at the international level. It is unanimously known, with according to the reports that are there to the UN or the International Red Crosses or the, the International Red Commission, that over more than 5.4 million people in total died in the DRC, either as a form of direct or indirect consequences of the ongoing racist neocolonial policy on, imposed on, on the Congolese population in an attempt to dismantle the Congo. And I mean, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, as you know, there's been a change in geopolitical reconfiguration. The dictatorship of Mobutu that was imposed on the Congolese people, and for those who know the history of the Congo, will ultimately know that we have been colonized by the Belgian, but, you know, the Congo is a state that was actually put together. It's an addition of different tribes that came together, different kingdoms, and they created the Congo economic state, if we can say, that was managed by uh, King Leopold II. And then, you know, Congolese, regardless of that, they resisted this oppression, slavery and colonization. And then in 1960, with all the African, Pan-African liberation movement with Kwame Krumah and Lumumba, you know, Franz Fanon, all the great leaders wanted the liberation of Africa and particularly the liberation of its people. So Lumumba advocated quite vehemently, but unfortunately, the United States came to play, particularly after their involvement in the World War II, and they came into play by deposing Lumumba. So really, this has been ongoing. That means when we talk today of 5.4 million people, it's really irrelevant because if you look at it, we don't have specific data to even tell you the toll of people who have died in the Congo over 
60 years nearly now, and it's over a million. It's more than the Second World War put together, the amount of people who have died and who are still dying. And one of the things that I want to tell you is you've asked me whether these numbers are known in Europe here or in the States, or people know that so many people have died. The mainstream media has really been silent about it. And I will tell you why the mainstream media has been silent. First of all, when you listen, you hear about the World War II, have you ever heard about a place called Chicolombwe? Have you heard about that place before? I don't think many people have heard about this town called Chicolombwe. But everybody knows about World War II. Everybody knows about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But nobody talks about Chicolombwe. Chicolombwe is actually a small town in the Congo where the mining of uranium the uranium that was used to generate the atomic bomb was mine. So that town is actually associated with the fabrication of the atomic bomb. Unfortunately, nobody hears about that mine. We hear about Nagasaki, we hear about Hiroshima, but we don't hear about Chicolombwe. With the mining sites, where they were mining, there's radioactive activity there. People have suffered, not only due to the radioactive agent, which is uranium, but also the environmental disaster, the poverty, the dehumanization, because those who went to mine there were mining as slaves, because the Congo at that time was still under the Belgian oppressive regime. So really, why would the media speak about the 5.4 million people who are dying in the Congo because they haven't spoken about Chicolombwe. So as we know, the media is controlled by multinational corporations who are profiting from the war in the Congo. So they're not going to speak about us because we are insignificant to them. They're just profiting from anything. Those who have profited from the war, the Second World War, and used the atomic bomb are still the same people who are profiting right now as Congolese people are dying. So really, this is why there is nothing in the media is because of the atrocity that is happening in the Congo. And who are the main perpetrators in the death of millions since 1996 in the Congo? Well, as we all know, the geopolitics at the moment, there is a say that say, if you control the Chicolombwe mining, you control the world. And as we all know, who is the one who has dropped the bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is the United States of America, who are the people who are fighting over the control of resources in the world, is those five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, the United States, the UK, France, Russia, and China. So who is profiting? We will call for the player, the big player, those who are calling axes of evil and who are saying that they are the police of the world, those who are undermining the multilateralism of the United Nations, those who are breaching international law to wage war everywhere, those who say to themselves that they are the greatest nation on this earth, those who think that they are God on this earth, they are the ones who are the first responsible. Because while the people were dying in the Congo, they were going in there making contracts with rebels, so-called rebels, because, you know, we know exactly who is instrumentalizing those rebels. They were signing illegal contracts that the people of Congo are not aware of. They were signing all these deals, enabling the multinational company 
to sign deals and take lands and while the people are dying, they are the ones who are financing peacekeeper mission in the Congo to put Congo under tutelage. In French, we say tutelage. In English, you are under the control of the UN. The Congo is right now a non-sovereign state. Slavery is ongoing in Congo, and the Congo is under the control of the UN Security Council mission, which is led by the first permanent member of the UN Security Council. Yeah, they are the, the first perpetrator. You are clearly putting the onus on the United States, but superpowers like the U.S. use proxies often to do their fighting. Yes. Who are the U.S. proxies in the Congo and in that region? You know, when we are talking about the Congo, we cannot talk just about the Congo itself. We have to talk about the Great Lake region of Africa. As you know, the Congo has nine neighboring countries. In the West, you have Angola and the Republic of Congo. So in the configuration of 1985, I mean, if you look at the country as it was divided, so in the West, you have Angola, you have the Republic of Congo, you have Central African Republic, you have the South Sudan, which used to be the full Sudan, you have Rwanda, Uganda, Tanzania, and Zambia. So you have nine borders, neighboring countries. So those countries, when you look at the geopolitics and also the economic geopolitics and the political geopolitics post-Berlin Wall, when you look at it, Angola used to be controlled by the Soviet Union. And then you look at the French, the Congo, France, Republic of Congo and the Republic of Central Africa was controlled by the French. But now you have the Russian there. And then on the, on the east side, you have Rwanda and Tanzania and Burundi. That used to be controlled by the Germans post-Second World War, but they went through the control of the UN, and then the UN uh, gave their control to the Belgians. And then you have Uganda and Sudan that was controlled by the British and Zambia somehow. So it's still the same people. And now when you look at the Congo again, post-90, you have China coming in. China now is coming in to also say, oh, I want a piece of the Congo. You know, I also want the control over the resources there. It's not only uranium. You have cobalt. You have cobalt that is used now for electronic and uh, electric car and all this. You have coltan used in mobile phone. You have diamond. You have copper that is used to conduct electricity. I mean, the whole of Congo, the resources, the mine, it's the underground resources. is what is fueling the technology, the special technology, car industry, you know, television, mobile phone, everything. But what about the people of Congo? The people of Congo are chained. They have guns on their heads. For some of us who are talking, who are able to speak in English, it's an effort. It's, it's a privilege. I speak five languages. I speak Swahili, Lingala. I speak French. I speak English. And I speak Dutch. I mean, how can a Congolese who live in a village who is under this oppression will even reach communication to explain themselves about what is ongoing in their country? Not so many. There's so very few Congolese are able to speak about what is going on because the Congo is like a cake. Everybody wants a piece of the cake. And right now, you have the U.S. trying to control the Congo so that China will not come in. Because after the war, the Cold War between the Russian and the USA, now the dynamic is gone between the USA and China. 
So that's where we are, really. Whoever's controlling the Congo is controlling the world. So that's where we really are. And it's a tragedy for humanity because in Congo, there are human beings. And what is ongoing in the Congo, it's breach of international laws, breach of uh, social corporate responsibility is actually the breach of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. Friends of Congo, the main advocacy group in the United States, points the finger mainly at Rwanda and Uganda. Uganda was, in fact, convicted, so to speak, by the International Court of Justice for its activities in Congo. Yes, Rwanda and Uganda are actually proxy country oppressor. I mean, the Congo placed dictators. You had in the past, it was Mobutu, who was almost like the main man in the Great Lake region of Africa. And now he has shifted. It's gone to Rwanda and Uganda. And actually, the genocide that happened in Rwanda in 1994 could have been prevented. But the U.S. were arming the rebels led by the Rwandan Patriotic Force that now led by Paul Kagame and Museveni. You know, the whole thing started in 1990 when Museveni was supported by the USA and then he overthrew the leader in Uganda and then they went in Rwanda. They did the same thing in Rwanda with the killing of Abiyarimana, which everybody knows that it's Paul Kagame and his allies who have played a role in the bombing of that airplane. So then the United Nations Security Council voted for a peacekeeping mission which could not protect the population over those who have taken arms to go into power. And who was supporting them again? It was the United States because other countries were trying to advocate for peace, but the United States was warmongering and supporting the regime of Paul Kagame in Rwanda and Museveni. And then we had this atrocious genocide of Hutu and Tutsi. And then you had this United Nations Security Council resolution on Operation Turquoise, which was like an operation channel to bring in refugees into Congo. And by bringing the refugees in Congo, um, Hutu came into Congo and the Tutsi also came into Congo. And then since 1994, the Congo has been a chaotic uh, uh, places of pillage. And of course, Uganda, Rwanda invaded the Congo. They fought a war in Kisangani, in the Congo, killing people for six days in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And they were arming other ethnic group in the Congo to kill Utu and to kill Congolese. There's the mapping report that is there. There are several reports. Uganda has actually been condemned by the international court to pay billions to the Congo for atrocity, for invading the Congo and waging a war. But unfortunately, due to the pressure, Congolese people don't get any justice due to the pressure from the political pressure and mainly from the United States, because the Uganda and Rwanda are under the protectorate of the United States. And we all know it, that they've signed partnership with the United States for protecting them, like defense partnership and contract. We all know that. And Uganda right now and Rwanda have been profiting from the Congolese resources, and it, it has become like a channeling country, like foster country, where mining or any other resources, is not just the mine, it could be uh, timber, it could be plant, it could be food, 
you know, channeling through Rwanda and Uganda to be exported elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, these are proxy countries where you also have Tanzania on the side and you have Angola because at some point the Congo was invaded by so many countries. You have Zimbabwe as well that came in to fight there, Burundi. So really, it's a tragedy that we are talking about human lives here, but it's a tragedy that is even worse than the Second World War because it's been ongoing for over 20 years. What good is the African Union if it cannot halt the slaughter of millions in Congo, a slaughter that continues to this day? First of all, the African Union, according to Kwame Krumah's vision, is not the African Union that we have today. That I would like to state, because we want an African Union, but we don't want an African Union that is depending politically on other countries for its functioning. Because as you might know, the African Union is functioning and donation coming from the United States or, you know, member state of the Security Council. You know, even today I'm hearing that Israel is trying to have a seat at the African Union and you're hearing that China also. And so the African Union is not that independent politically or economically to be supporting or to be helping the people of Congo. Of course, they might have said they have some intervention. They have peacekeeping, actually, like agency programs to support. But we all know that there's political influence, really, with the United Nation. And I, I'm sure there might be some good intention, but unfortunately, there are key players who are actually stopping all the good agenda, all the good resolution that comes out of the African Union with regard to human security in Africa and, and specifically in the Congo. The tragedy that is happening right now is that China and the USA are fighting over who should control the DRC. One of the key problems with us that we have as Congolese or as African is actually that we are seeing how black people suffer in America. We've seen the injustice the, since civil wars. We've read the history of the United States. And we do not believe that the United States as a state, regardless of the party, Republican or the Democrat, that they have an interest in defending the Congo through African because, first of all, there's no security for black people in America. So how can we trust them in thinking that they can, whatever dealing they're doing in Africa, that they, or in the Congo particularly, that they have our best interests? And indeed, we don't believe in that. And it has been demonstrated that when the signing of contracts in uh, the partnership that, for instance, Africom has with either Rwanda or Congo is with uh, dictators, Regime. I mean, uh, those regimes are there, they are like governors to protect the interests of the American and not to protect the interests of the population at large. And it's almost when you look at some of the statements that have come out of American statements, and when I look at people like Trump, who has really denigrated and almost insulted African, and when you look at a person like Hillary Clinton, when she came to the Congo a few years ago and told Congolese, oh, well, you have to get over it, you know? Women have been raped. People have died. There are serious issues of breach of international framework, legal framework. How can she talk to Congolese and say to Congolese women particularly that we have to get over it? I don't think that she will dare say that to Jewish people who have lived the Holocaust. Up to today, the Holocaust criminals are being chased and are being put on trial. 
how dare they say to Congolese to move on and to go into dialogue and to accept uh, criminal? It is an insult to our humanity. And I would just like to state that just as we see black people suffering in America, that the humanity is being denigrated, we do not believe that any project or any policy that the Americans are bringing in Africa or in Congo particularly is for the interest of the population. It's just for the interest of the multinational, of the oligarch, of those who want to control the resources in the Congo. That was Marie-Claire Farai of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Shamika Powell is co-director of educational studies at Tufts School of the Arts and co-author of an essay titled Kissing Cousins, Critical Race Theory's Racial Realism and Afro-Pessimism's Social Death. These are subjects that are hotly debated in black academic circles and among some activists, but not the stuff of daily black conversation. We talked with Professor Powell about the relevance of racial realism and Afro-pessimism. In thinking about how my co-author, Kevin Henry, and I talk about the paradigmatic kinship between critical race theory, racial realism, and Afro-pessimism, social death, I wouldn't say there's a should, but what we look at is, in many ways, analogous to the relationship that had been set up between civil rights, the civil rights movement and its framing of legal rights, juxtaposed with critical race theories, understanding the shortcoming of the civil rights legal framing. That same, I would say, similarly, a relationship exists between critical race theory and Afro-pessimism at large. And then Afro-pessimism's social death, which is all to say in the entire piece, and also as a, I would say also as someone who's in service to and toward Black liberation for all Black people, we're often just trying to make sense of what is happening on the ground. And when I say on the ground, I mean what is happening in people's day-to-day lives, what is happening in our day-to-day lives. And so the kinship between the two is such that Critical race theory says racism is endemic to American society. It is not just as normal as apple pie. It is part of the ingredients that made this American apple pie, which is how, one, that's a pretty revolutionary perspective for those who think racism exists as aberrant instances of racial animus. But for those who understand that racism, racial capitalism were all parts of creating this quote-unquote American society that we exist within, both past and present. When we then say Afro-pessimism, social death component, which is to suggest that regardless of what Black bodies do, Black bodies will experience gratuitous violence. One, it can be pretty disturbing because it pushes back against this notion of there is a reason for why Black bodies experience violence. Why, particularly in the realm of education, why Black students don't get provided equitable books or updated text or all of these things. So the kinship is, in many ways, I would say Afro-pessimism and its social death component go a step farther than critical race theory's racial realism component. 
Well, certainly Joe Biden doesn't accept that racism is endemic to U.S. society, although in recent years, top Democrats have been using the term systemic racism being a problem. And I remember very well that Barack Obama declared in his famous Philadelphia speech that racism was not endemic to the United States. Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> but I can also understand how, as political figureheads and also as politicians, I would suggest that there is a benefit of politicians, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, insert name of American political figure, there is a benefit to them not grasping onto or not espousing the reality that racism is endemic to American society. One, because that's quote-unquote hard to sell to your quote-unquote constituency. Two, I would suggest that for Black people, it pushes back against this notion of the exceptional Black, because the trope is that this Black person did enough to get to where they are. Those who are not here didn't work hard enough. That meritocratic norm. When you take from base that racism is endemic to American society, you have to also take into account and make sense of how that then shapes, constrains, you insert verb, of how racism has impacted the lives of racially marginalized people, particularly for me and my interest in liberation and also my scholarly interest focuses on Black students and Black people. But also you have to think about how white people have been advantaged <laughs> for no work of their own. When you take from base that racism is endemic to American society. Well, let's take a look at this through an historical Black movement perspective. Malcolm X was a Black nationalist as a minister in the Nation of Islam, and then a revolutionary Black nationalist after he broke with the nation, and an anti-imperialist until his death. Martin Luther King was an integrationist and self-proclaimed democratic socialist, and he was certainly an anti-imperialist and anti-war. So how do they fit into discussions of critical race theory and Afro-pessimism and racial realism? So that's a good question. So one, I don't want to suggest that there is one way that they fit into discussions of racial realism and or discussions of Afro-pessimism and its social death component. Now, there are multiple ways one can suggest that they fit into it and that their approaches to Black liberation exist alongside, exist in tandem with, and exist as interwoven with critical race theory, social death, and Afro-pessimism. So I would say in thinking about Black liberation and revolution, Malcolm X's notion of there's in the film Malcolm X, the great film Malcolm X, the scene where the white woman comes up to him and says, essentially, how can I help? How can I help black people? He's like, there's nothing you can do in many ways that you don't need to come to this meeting that I'm about to have to talk about these issues when you need to go and talk to your own community. But in thinking about that scene and thinking about the question you raise, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, I would suggest that at times they were explaining what is happening, what has happened. And as time progresses, we see that the explanations that have been offered up to elaborate or to explicate on why something happened, those of us in a particular contemporary moment see that that logic doesn't hold. 
So when we think about integration, when we think about Martin Luther King Jr. in relationship to the fight for civil rights, when we think about Brown v. Board, when we think about Malcolm X in that similar context, when we situate those two men and also how they understand and speak of Black liberation, we recognize them as men of their time. And I would suggest that we also recognize them as foretelling what many Black people knew to be true. And also, I don't want to say not going far enough, but recognizing that in many ways, the radical liberatory practices that get practiced in day-to-day life, we understand that those get co-opted by the very same oppressive systems and forces that we are pushing back against, such that when you, in reference to your previous question about Barack Obama, it would be to think 50 years ago, to think that Barack Hussein Obama would be president, one would be a stretch, but two, I would suggest that when we think about it in this current moment, Barack Obama as president does something representationally, of course, but it also does something for this American narrative of meritocracy, that you can do well if you work hard. And what I would suggest, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, I would suggest that when juxtaposed with critical race theories, um, racial realism, and Afro-pessimism, social death, both of those scholars offer us an understanding of how a Barack Obama's political positioning can get co-opted into a system that Black people have been pushing against. And I think Afro-pessimism highlights more, and in some ways uncomfortably, how violence is normal. Violence visited upon Black bodies, violence that Black bodies experience, violence that is used to create policies that are said to quote-unquote benefit Black people and benefit Black liberation. Violence is always already there at the scenes of those things. And I think in some ways that contrasts with certainly with Martin Luther King Jr.'s earlier notions of liberation and earlier notions of racial integration. And so in thinking through those, thinking through your question, that's what I would suggest. Your paper talks about the long afterlife of slavery, that slavery is still with us in many respects and producing this social death as an ongoing situation. How does critical race theory help us finally put the stake in the heart of this afterlife of slavery? Oh, Glenn, that's a great question. If I knew it, (laughs) if I knew even a reasonable answer, that would be great. Well, I think the question that you ask is what those of us working for Black liberation, Black revolutionaries, everyday Black people on the ground, like that's what we're trying to, one, to manifest, two, to grasp all the parts of it. So in thinking about critical race theory and how it can put a stake in the heart of this afterlife of slavery. So Sadia Hartman, a renowned Black woman scholar, does great work constructed came up with the phrase the afterlife of slavery so it's to talk about all the things we see in front of us at this very moment but also what i imagine will be seen in years to come which is that slavery happened in a particular historical time period but it did not stop within that historical time period and so we see the repercussions of that we also see how slavery black enslavement changes So when we think about issues of mass incarceration. So what I would suggest that critical race theory offers in trying to understand how to put this beast of American racism and anti-Black racism to rest would be an understanding that it is always already there. 
And that is to say that there is a freedom and there is a liberation in understanding the terms of a fight. That there's a freedom and a liberation in understanding that your enemy, and I don't want to say enemy in an antagonistic way, but to understand that, A, forces that you are fighting against have always been there and most likely will always be there. How they show up may be different. But I think in critical race theory, what it offers us is an understanding that it goes against the saccharine portrayal of racial unity that's often peddled in the dominant narrative. But it also goes against that same portrayal, which may be pushed by people who look like us, which may be pushed by, quote unquote, good intentioned black politicians or good intentioned other racialized people. Critical race theory in many ways says that the emperor has no clothes to bring that metaphor into the things, which is to suggest that knowing the terms of the fight is in and of itself part of the prize of and part of the present, both as a noun and also as a time period. It's part of the gift of fighting towards Black liberation. You write that in the afterlife of slavery, Black still equals slave in America. And I'm sure you're well aware that many Black folks would rebel against that statement, recoil against it, and say, I am nobody's slave. Yes, <laughs> I am well aware that uh, uh, having discussions with colleagues who I respect and think very highly of, and also having conversations with like my family members and other people and reading other people, other Black people's work, yeah, that would be a great point of contention. From a theoretical perspective, uh, how do you think the liberation movement is going today? Six years ago, I don't think I could have asked that question because we didn't have much of a movement. So let me ask you, when you say the Black liberation movement, what do you mean? Well, it's more important what you mean. <laughs> gotcha. One, I recognize my positionality. So I'm a Black queer masculine of center assigned female at birth person. And so I often think about Black liberation as, one, a space of expansiveness, a space where I, as a Black queer person, can exist, a space where I, as a Black assigned female at birth person, can exist alongside my Black comrades and compatriots who don't look like me or who may not experience oppression along lines of heteronormativity or heterosexism, which I do as a, a queer person. So how do I think that movement is going? I think from the Black liberation movement, from where I position myself and from the scholars that I read, so like Charlene Carruthers, Miriam Kaba, the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for Black lives, because the Black liberation that I work towards and that I work from centers those who are most marginalized, the movement or Black liberation is always a space of hope and always a space of anger in that there's always a simultaneity of moving forward and also being, I want to say, experiencing pushbacks, experiencing at the same time. So it's, it's a both and. So when you ask, where do I see it? How do I think the state and slash health of it? I think that is always being made. I think that an understanding where Black liberation is what is it is working towards and where it has come from is always in constant flux and it is always being it's being worked towards even as we stop to assess where it may be yes certainly the black movement is more diverse in its aspects for example with 
black women's studies and queer studies than in previous epics. I do not disagree. I agree. I think that has always been there, that black women, queer black people, uh, non-binary black people have always been there. The attention that they may have been receiving in the quote-unquote dominant spotlight is what I would suggest has changed. But black women, black queer people have always been fighting towards and fighting for black liberation, even at the same times that their fights and their struggles may have been silenced by quote-unquote those in power who were working towards black liberation. That was Professor Shamika Powell speaking from Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. Brazil is home to the biggest black population in the world outside of Nigeria, yet blacks wield very little institutional power. Carla Maria Garon Montero is a professor of anthropology at the University of Delaware. She's done extensive studies of black populations in Latin America. Most recently, Professor Montero immersed herself in the Quilombos of Brazil, autonomous settlements established to escape slavery and ongoing oppression of black and indigenous people. Absolutely. Yes, in fact, Quilombos can be considered a metaphor for Afro-Brazilian identity, but I also think a metaphor for black identities throughout the diaspora, because Quilombos were groups of people, mostly people of African descent, but also indigenous peoples and peoples of European descent, who banded together and created independent communities, not isolated communities, but independent communities outside the plantation system, in order to live their lives in the ways in which they so wanted to live. And as you mentioned, Brazil is a powerhouse uh, in the sense that it was the, the cradle of, of blackness in the Americas and the place where majority of peoples who were enslaved arrived in the Americas. And anthropologists and other scholars estimate that there are about 3,000 to 5,000 quilombos today in Brazil in rural and urban areas, mostly in rural areas. But the Brazilian government only recognizes about half of them in terms of cultural rights and in terms of land rights, even less so, about 207, which will be less than 7% of the existing quilombos in Brazil at the moment. The rights of people living in these quilombos, these various communities, which you say are ethnic rather than racial communities, were supposedly codified recently in the 1980s. But that codification did not bring independence. Exactly. Slavery ended in Brazil in 1888, which means that there were about 358 years of slavery that occurred in the country. And right after, the country left a long and brutal dictatorship of 21 years in 1985, the democratic governments that were implemented at the moment developed a new constitution. And there was a long process to actually implement this constitution. Finally, in 1988, this new federal constitution was established, and the black movement actually was very active in highlighting the importance of recognizing ethnic rights to peoples such as Quilombolas. So in 1988, this constitution established legally that Quilombos had the right to have access to territory and also live their lives in a cultural way, in the way in which they wanted to live. That, of course, was what happened in paper, because in reality, the actual process 
of a group of people deciding that they want to be Quilombos, that they have the right to be called Quilombos and have cultural and legal rights is very lengthy, is very difficult, and as I just mentioned to you, it's not easy at all. I think, and I actually have written a little bit about this point, I think that those who put together this constitution thought about the Quilombos in a very archaic way. They thought that there were almost very few quilombos, almost no quilombos in the country, and that no one will actually take advantage of this article, as actually as Article Number 68, that granted right of property to quilombo residual communities in a communal manner. So that was not the case. In fact, a number of quilombos organized themselves to request access to lands and access to cultural rights. But the process, as I mentioned to you, is very lengthy, and it requires the assistance of lawyers and so-called cultural experts. So it's a process that takes a long time, and as a result of that, in paper, we have this fantastic right for Quilombos, but in reality, it hasn't been implemented as it should have. Yes, the people in these Quilombos have to make a living somehow. You focused, as you said, there are many quilombos across the country, but you focused on the Campino da Independencia in Rio. Why did you focus on that particular settlement? Sure. I actually believe that I was very fortunate because I was interested in understanding quilombos actually all my life. This was something that was so fascinating for me as a scholar who actually was born in Ecuador, but was always fascinated with Brazil and its history, specifically in connection with the African diaspora. And I had the opportunity to visit this Quilombo when I was in Rio de Janeiro conducting research in a different topic. And I became fascinated with the strength that I saw presented in the lives of Quilombolas in this community in particular. Later, I learned that this was the first Quilombo in the state of Rio de Janeiro to receive cultural and legal rights to their land in a communal manner, and that they had decided that one option that they had, because they live so close to a tourist mecca, which is the city of Parachi, was to implement tourism. They decided that they had some things to offer and that they thought perhaps the tourists who went to Parachi might also want to visit Quilombo because it's located only about nine miles from this very important touristic city. And I started to study tourism as a result of that. And I was, again, very fortunate to have the opportunity to visit and stay in this Quilombo for five months conducting research, um, specifically on tourism, but how tourism connected to the other areas that Quilombolas in this community believe are so important, which are agroecology, health, differentiated education, and artisanal work. So they see these five areas, uh, along with tourism, as areas that are connected. And they assign individuals to be in charge of these areas, but they also talk among each other and support the projects that each one of these areas has. Now, much of the tourism to Brazil is what is classified by many as sex tourism. And we'll leave it to the audience's imaginations as to what that is. But you're talking about the Quilombo experience as being one of resistance and self-isolation and self-government. How do you make that into a product that the tourist wants to experience? Absolutely. Quilombolas actually didn't even realize that they had a a so-called product to sell to tourists. Initially, they just thought that 
perhaps tourists might want to visit and learn more about their culture because they had artisanal work to offer. That was the first thing that they had to offer to tourists. Later, they obtained some funds to implement a really, really nice restaurant that they have running. And actually, it has received a number of awards because of their delicious food. And they thought that they could offer these two options, the artisanal work and the restaurant. And they let tourists simply arrive and roam around and visit the community. But they were very unhappy with the results of this sort of laissez-faire approach because the tourists were not respectful. They will come into their homes, they will explore what they were cooking or their backyard. And of course, that was absolutely unacceptable. No one would want that in their own home. And they decided to organize tourism in a very structured way. That's when they created an actual product. And the product includes a very strict and restricted path of a guide that is taken by tour guides from the Quilombo, showing to the tourists what they have to offer in terms of their knowledge of the environment and medicinal plants. Also, their familiar organization, which is based on a matrilineal and matrilocal pattern of residence, and also the ways in which their history has been intertwined with the history of the African diaspora. So nowadays they have a very well-organized product. And what I think the most important aspect of it is that they decide how to organize it. They have made the conscientious decision as to not allow for mass tourism to take place. As I mentioned before, they only allowed local tour guides to run the, the show um, in every way. It is their decision how they organize their touristic experience. They actually call it ethno-ecological community-based tourism. So it's a combination of all of these elements that they think are so important about their own lives. That's what they have to offer to tourists as a product. And how are the earnings from this tourism distributed or invested by the Quilombo? What kind of internal processes go on? Sure, they have a really well-organized association of residents, which is precisely the organization that uh, got together to hire a lawyer and work on all the paperwork that was necessary to receive cultural and legal recognition. They did all of that really difficult and lengthy work. This same organization is the one that has decided about the five areas uh, are the focus of the development of this quilombo. And... They also run the community-based ethnotourism enterprise. About half of the population actually uh, participate in tourism one way or another, directly or indirectly, and about 60% of the members of the community actually uh, benefit economically from the touristic experience. So the association receives the funds and they distribute it to those who are engaged in it directly or indirectly. So a person who will be engaged in the tourism activity directly will be a tour guide, a, a person who is a cook in the restaurant, those who run the different workshops that they offer, people who work in the artisanal stores. Those will be people who work directly on tourism. People who work indirectly on tourism will be those who are actually working in agricultural activities and who provide the, the products for the artisanal work and also for the restaurant. You spoke of the matrilineal organization historically of these settlements, but you focus in your paper specifically on three women who are the root of what you call the myth of these settlements. Yes, 
Absolutely. I call it the myth of origin of this quilombo because I made every effort to obtain archival information about this beautiful story, and I was not able to do that. Of course, I am an anthropologist. I believe that that's not necessarily problematic at all because oral history is fundamental for the lives of people in general. And people with African descent focus more on what Taylor, an anthropologist, calls the repertory versus the archive. People's lives are actually their own archives. So I was not necessarily concerned about this. I just wanted to have this information to, to give it to the Quilombo. But I wasn't able to obtain it, and I just followed the oral history. And the oral history argues that there were three women, Bobo Antonica, her sister Marcelina, and her cousin Luisa, who were three women who were house slaves at the time of slavery. And they had important positions. In the home, they had a number of skills, including embroidery, weaving, and Marcelina was actually a healer and a midwife. So they had some important abilities that gave them some rank within the household where they lived. And the myth argues that they either, because the myth has a number of different versions, they either received the land from the hacienda owners who decided to leave because the land was no longer productive, or they simply left and they just took over the land. But regardless of what exactly happened, they are the ones who started to decide that the land where they had lived was the land where they deserved to live and created this, this quilombo. Of course, at the time, it was not called a quilombo necessarily. It was called a community, a community of peoples of African descent. Later, when we have this uh, abbreviation of the term quilombo, is when the people who lived there decided that they had the right to, to be called Lombolas, regardless of the fact that they uh, lived there after slavery ended and not before, or formed the Quilombo after slavery ended and not before. So this need is very, very important, the foundational need for the community. The community now is organized in, as I mentioned, a matrilineal kinship pattern, and they have 13 nuclei. Each nucleus is formed by a descendant of a woman who is an important member of that family. And one way or another, they all descend from these three women. The right-wing president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, what about his position, his attitude, his treatment of the Quilombo communities in Brazil? Yes, Jair Bolsonaro has had a similar position in regards to peoples of African descent. He appointed a person to direct the Palmares Cultural Foundation, an an Afro-Brazilian person who actually doesn't believe that there's such a thing as structural racism in Brazil. This foundation that I mentioned to you, the Palmares Cultural Foundation, is essential for the lives of Quilombos because it is the institution that provides cultural rights to Quilombos. After that, that's the first part of the process of a community being considered Quilombo officially. After that, the second step, the more difficult step, is the step where a community goes through the National Institute of Colonization and Agrarian Reform and receives communal land ownership of their territory. But to have a person who doesn't believe that structural racism actually exists in Brazil running at this cultural foundation that provides rights, cultural rights to Quilombos is highly problematic. And in practice, what has happened is that all of the claims of a number of Quilombo communities throughout Brazil 
to become quilombos officially, have been stalled. There has not been any progress in this case. And just to give you an example, in the last few years where Bolsonaro has been president since 2009, only 70 communities have received the cultural rights to become quilombos, when in the past the average was 120 communities per year. So things have really, really remained stalled, and some Quilombo communities actually fear that their legal rights, the communal legal rights that they have over their territory, are in danger. Now, more than half of Brazil's population is African descended, and the vast majority do not live on Quilombos. But how important do Black Brazilians see these Quilombos and Quilombo-like settlements to the general political destiny of Black Brazil? I believe it is essential. As I mentioned to you in the beginning of our conversation, I think that Quilombos are a metaphor for Afro-Brazilian identity. I think that unfortunately Quilombos have been both appropriated as symbols of resistance without really giving any consistency and respect to Quilombo rights in practice, or they have been seen as these groups of criminalized individuals that escaped slavery and therefore broke laws during the slavery system. So I think that they have been used and abused on both sides, in the positive and in the negative side. I also think that there are many Brazilians who have no idea that there are so many Quilombos in Brazil still today. They believe that, again, the Quilombo is an archaic uh, concept that ended when slavery ended. And I think that many Brazilians do not even recognize that perhaps they are living next door to a Quilombo, because there are urban Quilombos, that's the minority, but they exist. And they have been able to maintain some of their cultural practices in spite of the fact that they have lived in these urban areas. So unfortunately, the presence of Quilombos has not been as respected as it should have been and as recognized as it should have been in a country such as Brazil. But I don't think that's exclusive to Brazil. As you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, there are entities similar to Quilombos throughout the Americas. They are called palenques in the Spanish-speaking world and Maroon communities in the English-speaking world, and they are also almost completely ignored in other parts of Latin America. Brazil has the privilege, let's say, of having this legal recognition of Quilombos in its constitution. Other countries do not have that advantage, but again, as I have shared with you, the fact that this advantage is there is an advancement, of course, but it's not necessarily the final solution to this problem or the panacea that will solve this situation. I wanted to note that uh, November 20th is called the Day of Black Consciousness in Brazil. It is actually an official day celebrated throughout the country. And it's very interesting to note that this is the day when the leader of the Quilombo dos Palmares, Zumbidos Palmares, died in 1694. He was assassinated in 1694. The fact that nowadays this is the day when the Day of Black Consciousness is celebrated is actually the result of a grassroots effort of Afro-Brazilian groups who believe that it was important to highlight this day versus the previous day when this day was celebrated, which was May 13th. May 13th was the day when Princess Isabella declared the emancipation of enslaved peoples in 1888. But many Afro-Brazilian leaders believe that 
it made no sense to celebrate a day when a Portuguese white princess decided, on quotations, that it, it was time to end slavery, when in fact there was this tremendous pressure for the crown to end slavery. It was the last country to abolish slavery. It was important to celebrate this day in a different moment, a moment that highlighted the efforts of resistance and independence of peoples of African descent. And that's why this particular day was chosen versus the previous day, which was May 13, as I just mentioned. Of course, this took years and years and years because it was in the early 70s when grassroots groups decided to celebrate on a different day. And it was only in the beginning of the 21st century when, in fact, this became official. So people celebrated the day unofficially for a long period of time. And now it's official. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.